The Outspoken Bible. Conversations about the Word. A podcast from Scottish Bible Society. Hello and welcome to episode two of season five of the Outspoken Bible. I'm Fiona Stewart. I'm joined today by Neil Glover. Hello. Hello. And once again by Elaine Duncan. Hello. Hello. Just to say to listeners, Jen's had to take a step back from the Outspoken Bible for a few episodes and we want you to know that it's not because she doesn't like the Old Testament, even though she was uh, a little bit uh, (laughs) reticent about that. Uh, And it's not also because we've fallen out. We are looking forward to Jen coming back later in the year to join us. Uh, But at the moment, Elaine, uh, we're delighted that you've come to join us for another episode and I think maybe the next one after this as well. Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll stick with it as long as you have me. Elaine, I couldn't believe that we managed to get spaces in your diary. I know. It's incredible. Yeah. Exactly. Extraordinary. Now, Elaine, you posed a question to listeners last time about digital Bible experiences, and uh, we would love to hear people's views on that. So you can get in touch with us by emailing outspoken at scottishbiblesociety.org or via the SBS socials to let us know your thoughts. Are you a digital convert? Do you prefer your trusty paper Bible? And do you have any stories of how you've found and experienced good digital engagement with the Bible? So that's outspoken at scottishbiblesociety.org for that or indeed any other comments. We'd love to hear from you. Now, in the face of your derision, friends, I've ditched Picky Lane as a segment. <laughs> what a relief. <laughs> so, Elaine, yeah, no, you're off the hook, Elaine, but I am sticking with the opening question. Maybe this should be choose a lane. Um, anyway, I'll choose you in a minute, Elaine. Uh, then later in the episode, we're going to be talking about First Kings 18. That's a famous mountaintop encounter and a proper test of faith. Listeners, again, if you haven't read the chapter in advance, then now would be a good time to pause the podcast, uh, read the chapter and come back. Uh, but just as an opener for you both today... I'm going to choose Elaine in a minute. I want to ask you both uh, about a time when you've had to face up to a testing situation and you've had to exercise some faith. You might need to anonymise this. Absolutely. (laughs) Off you go. (laughs) Okay. I think very often for me, the, the kind of standing up for something that you feel passionate about has often been with other Christians. You mean uh, two other Christians, sort of against other Christians, or yes, standing yes, up to I, them. Yes, yes, standing up to um, other Christians. I mean, it happened to me actually even just this week where, you know, something that you are absolutely committed to in terms of maybe it's uh, an openness about partnership or maybe it's about something about generosity of including other people into something that you're involved with. And then you meet this kind of absolute resistance. So I'm not going to mention any names. Oh, because tell they us. Might tell us who it was. No, I'm not telling you this. Because um, <laughs> they might listen to this podcast. But it, it is interesting uh, just about how you handle that, where you want to stay firm in your convictions, but actually still be kind. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that would be me. I'm not mentioning any names. Yeah. <laughs> That was nice and nice and vague. I like I like that. I yeah, don't like the vagueness sort of, at all. I'm the, the not a fan of that. Thing. Yeah, go on. You're not a fan of that. Give us an example then. So I, I'm going literal. So I became a Christian through a rock climbing holiday and mountains and climbing have always been a big part of faith for me. Probably the scariest experience I had on a mountain, there were probably two. One, uh, just before I got married, uh, I was up climbing uh, on a, a Northern Irish mountain called uh, Sleeve Binion. 
has lots of rocks, rocky tours at the top. And I genuinely thought I might die. Um, they, and I remember praying like nothing else before. And probably when I did my mountain leader training, um, I was on a big bit of the Cairngorms called the Great Moss. And it was just late at night. And it was I remember waking up really, really cold, like shaking like I'd never shaken before. But I had my pal, Matt, who was a former Marine. And he just went, it's all right, Mike, I've been here before. And he gave me a nice, he had a cup of tea and a flask, he called it a wet because he's a Marine. And uh, that made all the difference. So those were my two scariest mountaintop experiences. Gosh, there you go. That was a literal mountaintop experience. I know. What did you say he called it? A wet? A wet. Marines and Navy because marines are in the navy um call a cup of tea a wet and if you're in the army you call it a brew fun fact this is know. such a knowledgeable exchange it's education you, you, it? i mean you just it's education you just learned so many things you never knew before every week uh, i'm kind of with you Elaine. I, I find these confrontational things quite difficult and I, I, we might come back later on to talking about apologists and you know these kind of confrontation moments that that people have and i have to say I remember at university being asked to go on one of those guerrilla Christian panels. And to be honest, even the name, even the name is not setting it up for, you know, you feeling comfortable and winsome. Um, and I just remember it in a, it was in a lecture hall somewhere in the David Hume Tower. And I can, I can still take myself back there and I start to feel sweaty palms. I, I hate that kind of feeling on the spot confrontation. I'm probably better at it than I used to be, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I, th- I think those guerrilla Christian events were probably one of the things that helped me to grow in confidence about uh, speaking very openly about about Christianity and what and what we as Christians believe but doing those in a student union bar yeah in a, a university or a college uh yeah that that yeah I suppose that was not unlike an Elijah um, experience I just use the word grill Fire. Yes, well, absolutely. We used yes. to call them Grill the God Squad. Mm. I mean, we were so cool, weren't we? <laughs> it was irony. It was taking the word onto ourselves. Like and you Quaker probably had stick. a flyer that was on a bit of coloured paper. <laughs> yeah, done on a Mac that yes. somebody had access to in the library. So 90s, with a bit of clip art. Anyway, thank you both for sharing that. Uh, last week we encountered Elijah, and he was a man who seemed to kind of appear out of nowhere uh, for this um moment in the in the ravine and then the the encounter with the widow and today he comes into this encounter with Ahab uh, king of the northern kingdom uh, this week uh, Neil you've enti- you actually have entitled these episodes uh, and you've entitled this one confrontations with Obadiah and the Baal prophets Baal Baal what do we say should we establish this from the beginning I don't know I know, I let's, let's just mix it up. Mix, mix it up. up. That's fair. Confrontation with Obadiah and the Baal prophets. Um, but we begin with the words after mm. a long time. Is that significant? Well, it seems like it. I mean, it must be about three years, mm-hmm. mustn't it? It's, well, it says three years, doesn't it? In the third year of the drought. Yeah. And I think what's interesting is that we don't know of those three years, we don't, we're not really told in chapter 17 how long he was in the ravine, mm-hmm. and then how long he was with the widow. But three years is actually a long time. I mean, you can get a degree in three years. <laughs> the Outspoken podcast has lasted for three years. Correct. And that feels like an eternity. It's a long time. The, the effect of the pandemic so far. Yes. Yeah. Three years. Yeah. The pandemic's an interesting comparison, I think, isn't it? Because I, I think up till three years ago, probably in in the UK, we would have very little experience of going through something 
as a nation that we didn't really know that the end point probably raised a lot of questions for people. I, and I, you feel there's a sense with this, yeah. because this drought could have kept on going and kept on going. Hence yeah. the hiding of the horses and, you know, all of that stuff. Well, there's one happening in Kenya at the moment. And mm. the reason I know that, well, maybe Elaine, you've had contact with the Bible Society there, but uh, apparently is it, is it, how long has it been going for? It's, I think it's more than three years. Yeah. It, horrendous. And they don't know when it's going to end. Yeah. And so, so living with that knowledge is... Yeah, it's interesting to think, isn't it, about when, when you know, our own recent experience through the pandemic, when we didn't know when it was going to end. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and the the level of anxiety that that creates, yeah. both in individuals, but actually can then spread within a community. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and I think, you know, thinking about the incident now in Chapter 18, mm. And thinking about you know all all the kind of key players in in it, what had they been thinking and feeling mm-hmm. during those three years? Because it, it wasn't just like well a week passed and yeah, then yeah. God said right do this. Um, so they've all been through this collective trauma of this three year drought, mm-hmm. and it's got so desperate the fact that even Ahab himself has gone looking for wells. It's like yes. he, he, he's not going to be prepared to send out his general or something like that. Is I need to find this water. Yeah, yeah, and 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 yeah, and that's right, that's right, and uh, and into that we we encounter the voice of the Lord appearing to Elijah, and we touched on that last week. That thing of when Elijah responds to God's voice and when is it Elijah's own initiative. But it's very clear here, isn't it? The word of the Lord came to Elijah, go and present yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the land. So there is an end point coming and Elijah, that's revealed to him. Mm-hmm. He then encounters Obadiah. So can we talk about Obadiah? I love Obadiah. He's he's one of my favourite characters. So he's he's very, very interesting. So first of all, you you picked up on the fact that, that God has said, to Elijah, go and do this. And that's a common pattern. Uh, very specific instructions at the start of chapter 17, go to the brook, ravens will feed you. We're then told Elijah went to the brook, east of the, I think it's east of the Jordan, isn't it? And the ravens feed him according to the word of the Lord. So there's a very set pattern. Uh, God does a thing, quite prescriptive. Elijah obeys that thing. And then we're told it happened according to the word of the Lord. Now, what's interesting here is that God has a very specific instruction, go to Ahab and the rain's going to come. But there's a whole bunch of other stuff that Elijah's going to improvise. And the question is, how much is he doing according to the word of the Lord? The text doesn't tell us. It did in chapter 17 all the time, according to the word of the Lord. That disappears in, in chapter 18. Mm-hmm. And one of the first things that he does is he really puts the frighteners onto Obadiah. Obadiah's gone out looking for water. And instead of finding uh, water, he finds the prophet who's going to bring water. I quite like that idea that you don't just encounter the thing you need, you, d- you encounter the prophet who's going to teach you about God through this. Uh, but Obadiah is really interesting because he is an institutional insider and Elijah is a prophetic outsider. And we're instinctively drawn initially to the fire and the heroism and the panache and the charisma of the prophetic outsider. But there's a really interesting contrast. The, the word that's used in verse 4, which says, uh, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them in a cave and provided them with food and water. Now, that word provide in Hebrew is quite uh, an unusual word. It's a kul kolam. It's called a pilpel, which is quite an unusual Hebrew construction. And um, that pilpel of kil kulum 
also happens earlier in the story uh, twice. It happens when the ravens feed Elijah and then when the when the widow feeds. And now we're asked to set that alongside the fact that Obadiah is doing exactly the same thing as the ravens and the widows have done, but it's not in a miraculous way, it's a courageous way. And also, um, but it's 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 a hundred prophets, not one prophet. So there's a sense in which Obadiah's providing is even greater than that which Elijah has received. And I really like Obadiah for that. I like what you say there, Neil, about um, Obadiah being a kind of faithful insider. Yeah. And and that makes me think of somebody like Daniel. Yeah, mm. yeah. You know, and, and the, the the three friends that were taken, um, you know, in exile from Jerusalem into Babylon and, and served, you know, basically a kind of pagan king. But now... As we noted last time, Ahab is actually the king of Israel and is, is should be kind of vice-regent and reigning under God's rule and is not doing that at all well. Um, but there's Obadiah as a kind of faithful God follower serving um, in the environment. And actually, that would represent the work situation Mm-hmm. of many of our fellow Christians mm-hmm. today across the world. You know, there are not many who are doing roles like us in comparison, you know, church leader, leader of a Christian organization, a pioneer in Christian arts and uh, drama. But but for most people, they're, ju- they're God's person in a workplace. Point for hire. I thought that's where you were going with that. <laughs> I should have added that. Sorry, I missed Voice that. for hire, Elaine. That's how I describe myself. Missed the moment. Um, but that that just describes the situation for so many Christians today. Faithful in an environment that's not conducive to faith or can be even antagonistic towards faith in God. Yep. And it's interesting, I think, because it brings up for me a, a question around how we interpret the Bible, how we... Um, polarize characters and 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 situations within mm. scripture yeah. and you know we you know i think we would be keen and i'm sure all all listeners would be saying well i don't have a sunday school understanding of you know these people as being heroes of the faith but we do set people up as heroes of the faith and and sometimes i think that means inadvertently we we then set them in opposition to well, those I who think, are not the glamorous think, heroes of faith i right? think elijah does that here because he meets obadiah and it's worth saying with obadiah building on what you've just said, Elaine, that we're told in the text he feared the Lord greatly. That's that's high praise indeed. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think the narrator is much kinder to Obadiah than Elijah is, because when Elijah meets Obadiah, he's he 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 doesn't pay any attention to the fact that he's hidden all these prophets, even though Obadiah tells him. And a really stinging thing, he says, go and tell your Lord I am here. And the word Lord, Adonai, um, doesn't quite mean Yahweh, but it has connotations of who are you really serving, your Lord, especially as his name is Obadiah, which means servant of Yahweh. So Obadiah could say, well, my Lord is actually Yahweh. Uh, but Elijah's clear, oh, no, you're serving this dodgy king. And when Obadiah replies to him, he doesn't call him my Lord. He calls him simply Ahab. So there seems to be a sense in which Elijah, he's at best, I think you could say he he doesn't pay much attention to Obadiah's obedience. And at worst, you could say he's probably a little bit sceptical about him. 
And Elaine, you 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 want yeah sorry Elaine, you were going to say I think about where you've been thinking about where Elijah's motivation and all that might be coming from. Yes, because I find it intriguing that you know Obadiah, I mean he's terrified when he meets Elijah because he can't he can't really see anything good coming of this because Elijah in his experience has kept disappearing, um, but he. He tells Elijah what he has done. You know, he kind of justifies himself to Elijah by saying, but look, I, I've I've rescued these prophets. I've been providing for them. And then later on in the chapter, we discover Elijah saying, well, there's only me. Yeah, I'm the only you know, prophet. I'm the only prophet. But he's just been told that actually there's at least another hundred that have been kept safe. And I, I find myself thinking, why why is that, you know? Is is there a kind of arrogance that he's, he's on this kind of rule that he is God's man and he and only he can save the nation? Or is he so terrified that God has said, I want you now to go to Ahab and and that he knows that this is going to be a confrontation that's, that is going to be terrifying? And so actually the, the fear is preventing him from hearing what Obadiah is saying. Because when we're fearful about something, we lose perspective completely. It's just a human reaction, isn't it? Where we don't hear what people say, we don't take it in or we don't believe it. And we tend to retreat into that, don't we? That that sense of kind of, I've made up my mind about this person and, and that's what I think about them. So I'll, I'll you know, to, to control the situation and allow me to, you know, my, my brain's thinking about all the things, the other things that are going on. I'll, I'll keep them in that place. He, he doesn't seem to want to change his opinion no. of who Obadiah is. No, and later but then Obadiah on, doesn't seem to want to change his opinion of who Elijah is either. Because I was struck by that. He's kind of like, yeah, well, you're going to tell me to go and see Ahab. Yeah, and then yeah. the next thing you know, you're not going to be there and he's going to kill me. Thanks very much. Although he does change his opinion because it does go and tell him. So once, well, yeah. he's, once he's got <laughs> yes, certain that's reassurances, true. That's true. he goes. <laughs> that's true. But, but Elijah later on, I mean, we've had this whole, we, this is such an interesting discussion, isn't it? Is how how um, how benignly do we interpret um, Elijah's forgetfulness? Is he is he scared or is it a kind of arrogance? But I think what we're noting here is, in a sense, the contrast between maybe contrast between Obadiah and Elijah's character, in as much as we can discern some of that, but also their situation. Mm-hmm. And 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 the underlying thing is that actually God uses both of these guys and works through both of them in very effective ways. And, and perhaps, I mean, Neil, I'm interested in you saying that you, you know, you're really drawn to Obadiah. Perhaps also, it's a, it's a caution to us, isn't it, that often when we come to scripture, we, we bring our own situation, yeah, yeah, to our interpretation. So, so I, I have lived as a bureaucratic insider. I've worked in the hated institution of one hundred one two one George Street. Uh, sorry, I don't think it should be hated, but but some people don't like it very much. That's the church headquarters of the Church of Scotland. For those not familiar, um. And I've I've been Obadiah, and I felt sometimes that moment where uh, Elijah says in the mountain later on, "Lord, let it be known that I am your servant." The word he's using is Obed. Um, let me know, and it's a contrast to Obadiah, which means the servant of the Lord. And I felt the kind of ouch of that moment of someone kind of putting themselves up and as the kind of person who's not bound by the institution, by the person who's not compromised. 
the fiery prophet and I've felt like the weak insider. I felt a bit pathetic sometimes. Mm -hmm. So I've had that sense of being Obadiah at times. It's not good, is it, that we have that level of judgment on one another? You know, and I think this is a really helpful reminder that the Lord has, we're all very different in terms of our characters and our personalities Mm -hmm. and in terms of what the Lord is asking of us in our context and situation. And having a generosity of spirit Mm. towards those that are called to do something different. Yeah. Um, to to what I may be doing is is just something very healthy for the com- the church community, isn't it? And yeah. again, it's that reminder because we, and we've alluded to this already today that in the meantime, you know, these two are different and sizing each other up, and uh, you know, we, we set them in opposition. Actually, the real opposition here is the guy who's hiding. You know, he's trying to get rid of the the, the horses and the donkeys so they can eat, but he's not bothered about the fact that his wife is slaughtering the prophets of the Lord. You know, so so it's the. Th- I think often that division takes our eye off the the ball. Really, what's what's going yeah. on? The place it, mm-hmm. the place it always takes me to uh, is Corinthians, First Corinthians, um, where Paul has got wind of the fact that the different tribes have emerged. You know, some like Apollos, some like Paul, um, some like uh, who's the other one? It's Peter, isn't it? And some like Jesus. I think they're the most irritating ones. Oh, we just love Jesus. And um, the uh, and Paul Paul um, Paul has no truck with any of it. He just says this is a nonsense, and we're all rooted in Christ. And probably the words he the group he has most hardest words for the hardest words he has are for his own supporters. He, he's and it's that thing that you just said, Elaine, isn't it? It's that having that generosity and what Paul has in Corinthians is that eye to the big picture that we're all in Christ and Paul planted and Apollos watered and we all have a role to play. It also takes me back, Elaine, to what you said at the beginning about you know sometimes our our biggest battles have been with other Christians. Mm. Mm-hmm. And goodness me, isn't that taking our eyes off the, the main picture? Um, yeah, so Obadiah, anything else you want to say on him? I mean, it, it is striking that 100 prophets are saved and he manages to provide for them. It's once again, Neil, an affirmation of the gift of administration, which I think yes. is yeah. something you're keen on. <laughs> yeah, um, oh, it, it's, um, it's, you know, the thing that really winds me up is when people say, oh, we've got far too many managers and not enough leaders. Oh, I can't stand that when people say that. <laughs> um, it, it's so, it's so... You know, you've got a choice. You either have a good management or bad management. Absence of management is not an option. Um, and a lot of really good managers can be fantastic leaders as well, like Obadiah. Right, thanks. Okay, so the counselling session is open, Neil. Over, Neil, and we're going to move on to Carmel. Did I get a bit ranty <laughs> there? We're, we're, we're never left in any doubt as to what Neil really bit, thinks. A bit. Oh, Here's, a trivia question. Here's a trivia question for you. Which Go. other biblical character came from Carmel? I know this because you told us. <laughs> but you I was knew going already. To or... <laughs> well, I think I can work it out. This Abigail. Is Abigail. Abigail. I wanted I to relive Abigail. that conversation because I'd cut you off before you had a chance to answer. <laughs> I know. You did that classic thing where you asked the question and then you jumped in with the answer before I had time to, early, had time to process. Abigail, she was a hero of mine. Um, what did she do right. again? She, oh, she was amazing because she provided, she, she kind of negotiated, I think. Uh-huh. She, she smoothed the way for David and for difficult husband. Yeah, he was an idiot. Um, right, so we're on Mount Carmel 
yep. as an aside, my mm. I do um, Lectio 365, and this morning the psalm was Psalm 121, I lift my eyes to the hills, oh, and yeah. it mentioned Horeb, as it, well, the, the commentary talked about the different mountaintop experiences. So we're on a mountain, and actually next week, sorry, the, the mountain Carmel, rather, mm. next week is what I was going to say, we're going to be on another mountain, we're going to be on Mount Horeb. Uh, what 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 is going on in this encounter? Elijah's there. Ahab's there, the prophet, sorry, Elaine, you want to say something? Yeah, just before we get to that, I'm intrigued by verse 16, where it says, Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him that Elijah wants to meet him. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. And when he saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel? I just think that's a great line. And Elijah just immediately turns it totally around to say to Ahab, I've not made trouble for Israel, but you and your father's family have. And it's almost like the, the, you know, the ground is prepared as Elijah confronts Ahab to say, everything that God's people are living through at the moment is actually because you have moved away from worshipping the living God. Mm -hmm. And really is kind of, putting the responsibility right where it needs to lie. Yeah. And Ahab clearly has gone so far down that route that he doesn't in any way, he doesn't have any truck with the troubler of Israel, does he? He, no. he gathers his prophets. He's obviously confident that he's going to be victorious in this situation. And it's the thing that despots always do, isn't it? Where they 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 don't like the outsiders, so they, they claim they're being unpatriotic. You know that you're letting the country down. You're troubling Israel. These troublemakers. Um, it's a it's a classic um, despot move that's going on here, and we're gonna we're gonna see it later on as well um, when he has all the in the episode towards the end of Kings where he has all the prophets, and then the one prophet who tells him the thing he doesn't like. He doesn't like having him. He always makes trouble yeah. for me. Yeah. So Elijah yeah. doesn't like the troublesome prophet. Who shall rid me of this troublesome priest? Mm-hmm. So they, they find themselves on Carmel. Mm. The prophets are there. Elijah's there. Ahab's there. I mean, you feel there should be dramatic music. Oh, it's dramatic. As a theatre person, surely you must like this. Very dramatic, this isn't it? It's yeah. a bit of the impresario, isn't it? Or not the impresario, that's not what I'm looking for. You know, the sort of da-da yeah. moment to the whole Ringmaster. Thing. Is that ringmaster? Well, yeah, or the magician, really. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, the prestige was what I was thinking of, actually, of, of you know, Going to pour water. Going to pour water. That's a, that's a technical term, isn't it? Prestige. I think it's in magicians, isn't it? So they so they set the thing up, they reiterate it, yeah. and then the prestige is the moment when the the hat comes, the rabbit comes out the hat, or the, the hat comes out the rabbit. The hat comes out the rabbit. <laughs> <laughs> but Elijah is certainly showing huge confidence mm. at this point. You know, so so what, whatever we think about what was going on with Obadiah and whether there was some fear or there was some anger, but at this point he's just kind of confidently, I mean, comes across a confidently God's man. Mm-hmm. And he says, right, get as many priests of Baal that you can, yeah. bring them here, mm-hmm. you know, and gets the mm-hmm. whole thing set up. And I mean, the drama is incredible. Mm-hmm. But you do get this sense that actually Elijah is enjoying oh, this. Oh, yeah, isn't mm-hmm. he? Mm-hmm. That, bit, that bit where he mocks them. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, we, we were talking about... Um, those great debates that the the atheists, so it was, it was you um, when we were preparing, Elaine, I'd mentioned, you know, it's a bit like these moments where Dawkins confronts uh, 
various Christian. Who was the one you said it was? Um... No, I was I was thinking about some of those debates that John Lennox has had. You know, very public debates. Sometimes maybe with Richard Dawkins or Hitchens, and you know, bringing that kind of modern atheism face to face with a faithful believing Christian and able to able to debate. And I, th- I think often um, John Lennox wins these debates because of his humility, his grace, and his clarity of expression about what Christians believe. And, and so maybe that's where those debates differ a little bit from this very dramatic um, and very... Um, confrontational event on the top of Carmel. Yeah. The the one it reminded me of, very often these debates, as you've just said, are Dawkins is very acerbic, so was Hitchens. He was he would ridicule, he would mock, he would make all these kind of snide asides. I, I actually quite warm to Hitchens in the end. He had a before he died, there was a pastor who reached out to him and and um it, Hitchens was really kind of quite moved by that. So um, there was something up. There was a big heartedness to Christopher Hitchens. Um, but anyway, he 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 was often very snide, and then you'd get this very kind of polite apologist, and it, it felt a bit of a mismatch. But the one time that I I didn't see that was when Hitchens in New York debated the American civil rights leader Al Sharpton. And Al Sharpton had clearly been a bit of a street fighter. He'd known the civil rights movement and he had no hesitation who who showed him up for being a person of privilege in his eyes. And that moment when Elijah's laughing and saying, surely he's off meditating, he's wandered away, he's he's gone on a journey, maybe he's asleep and he got to make him. That, That kind of tone showed up in Al Sharpton there, that kind of uncompromising tone. Really kind of, I mean, it, I know the fire of the Lord is about to come down, but it's like Elijah is building fire in the atmosphere, isn't it? And really antagonizing these folk. And that brings us back to the theatre aspect of it. So there's the theatre of this building of of the altar. And we're questioning... Wait, what is that altar? Where is that altar? So we're talking here about uh, verse 30, where it says they came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Mm. Was mm. there normally an altar of the Lord on Mount Carmel? Yeah, we that's we are not sure about it. I can't find it. because And there's strict instructions sometimes that you're not allowed to build an altar anywhere else. So I was wondering. Uh-huh. Yeah. There, there, yeah. There was an altar that happened in King Josiah's time. I need to think about which one that is. Um, yeah, and I think what I took from this section was that as Elijah kind of takes the 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel, it's almost that in dramatic form and very um, visual form, Elijah is reminding God's people who they are, where they have come from, and really, I think, is, introdu- is reintroducing them to their identity because their identity as God's people has been eradicated be- because of leaders who are leading them away from God rather than towards God. 
I mean, it's once again, it's once again an affirmation of the role of theatre and reenactment. Yes, yes, in the place of the worship of God's people. Absolutely. If he, he he could have made some speech where he'd said, "Don't you remember? You're all members of the tribe of Israel." But instead, he t- I can see him picking up the stone very kind of solemnly. Directed. I wonder if he named them. I wonder yeah. if he named each stone. You know, this is Levi. This is yes. Reuben. <laughs> And in a strange way, it takes me back to when we, we talked about um, Jesus and the woman caught in adultery. And mm. we, we talked quite a bit about the writing on the sand. Yeah. And we didn't really reach a conclusion about what was going on with that. But there's something of the theatre of the moment. Yeah. And I, I mean, I suppose there's a number of prophets who are, who are renowned for that, aren't they? Um, but yeah, Ezekiel, interesting. he's big on oh, that. Yeah. Isaiah, what what do you make Jeremiah. of all the water? What do you make of all the water? Well, that was that was my next point, Lane. I was going to say there's clearly a budget in this theatrical production. <laughs> <laughs> Where did they get the water from in I a know. time of drought? Are people going? What are you wasting all that water for? Uh, but yeah, and he he really goes for it, doesn't it? More, please, mm-hmm. a second time, a third mm-hmm. time. How close to the sea were they? Oof. They're up a mountain. Can't be that easy to get. Water I know. Here. I don't know. You know, because that's that's water that might be available that's not drinkable. Are you sea let, water. Yeah. You're letting them off. Yes. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there's so many passages in the Bible that just raise questions that you can't uh-huh, answer. Uh huh. Yeah. Or did God provide the water? Which is making me think. My head's going off in different places, but make me think about God providing the lamb for the sacrifice with Abraham and Isaac. I mean, it doesn't say. Doesn't it doesn't but, say. But it's very. But it's. I mean, it's Elijah thinking, God, you had better show up here because I have put quite a lot of effort in here. I'm all in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely all uh-huh. in. Uh-huh. So we we've debated Elijah, and I, I am often a little bit hesitant towards Elijah because of his dismissal, I think, of Obadiah and that kind of single-mindedness, single, not just single-mindedness, but I'm the only prophet. I'm the only prophet, refusal to recognize anyone else. I struggle with that. Boy, you have got to admire his courage at this point. I mean, who else? I can't think of anyone. Maybe Moses when he opens up the Red Sea, but who else has that level of trust in, in God? I mean, he, he is, as you've said, all in, doubling down. Yeah. Yeah, and it, there's there's an interesting contrast isn't there with the effort that Elijah goes into mm. to show that if fire comes mm. it is clearly from the living God because everything that has been done to set this up would mean that you know a, a human kind of rubbing two sticks together or, you know, they wouldn't have had matches. But, you know, th- there is no human way in which this fire can ignite. No, it, it's not going to be a but, random but, th- thunder strike, is it? You can't really pull that no. one off. Uh-huh. But that contrast, which a bit that we kind of skipped over, which is the effort that the prophets of Baal were going to, to create, you know, to, to, to get their supposed God to show up and bring the fire. And, yeah, and, I mean, their behaviour, I mean, is, is actually really quite disturbing. Well, well I'd it? like to circle back to that, actually, Elaine, because we, we have skipped over it, you're right, and and I would like to just think about about that, the, the use of the word limping, mm. so the, the, the very physical nature of what they are doing. And it's an enactment, so Elijah's an enactment of the, the power of God and, 
but this is all and also the memory of God with the 12 stones. But as you say, going back, Elijah said, how long are you going to limp? And there's this idea that when you're caught between two worlds, it, 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 you just can't walk properly. And then later on, they limp around the altars as almost embodying what their God has done to them. And then their behavior becomes highly self-destructive. And it's the idea that is that, you know, worshiping God might seem attractive because you have a God who does what you tell them to, but ultimately you end up in patterns of behavior which which just lessen you and, and uh, deplete you and cause you to limp. I'm, re- I'm reminded of that, um, the, the famous bit where Jesus in Laodicea in Revelation says, you're neither hot nor cold. It's the idea of being caught halfway and it, it's just the worst of all worlds. Mm. And obviously, you know, you you can't draw direct parallels from something, but but there is something of the the, the seeking to, um, I suppose, through self destructive tendencies, the, the seeking to pacify or to find identity, to find affirmation of what you believe. You know, we see that very starkly played out here in this chapter. But but that's not something that just stays in Old Testament times with the pagans. Do you know? And we, I, I we, think we see that repeated, don't we, through history? Uh-huh. And and we see it in the church mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. You know, we've, I mean, we possibly now in more honest moments might see it in ourselves mm-hmm. as well. There is something within human nature that 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 is religious in the sense of what is it that we need to do in order to attain that relationship with God or or have that sense that that we deserve the favor of God. And I guess in essence that that's true of every world religion. And we take that on board as Christians as well, even though God has clearly showed us in the New Testament that actually it's not about what we do, it's about what he has done and what and what Jesus has done. And that that's the real contrast, isn't it, with the, the behaviour of the, the the Baal, the priests of Baal in this chapter. Yeah, mm-hmm. we, we get versions of that all the time where we say things like, the reason this isn't working, the reason that God is not showing up in our church or in our programme is because we're not trying hard enough. So we need to keep trying harder. Or we're not making big enough sacrifices. Or we're not harming ourselves enough. Um, and similarly, we're often drawn into these um these these patterns of you know wasting ourselves for God because somehow it feels like that's what we're trapped in and you need that Elijah figure to to say no this is the way this is mm-hmm. a, there's a different way of this happening yeah I, mean, I think that's helpful because it, it stops us from from caricaturing these these prophets of Baal oh, yeah. too much doesn't kind of, it? kind of pantomime very, sort of a way. pantomime figures aren't they yeah. yeah look at them they're so foolish running around trying to trying to persuade this so called God God to to move but actually. I think the, the the more mature understanding is to think, well, wait, where do I see that in me? Yeah, yeah. But, you know, yeah. overwork. And I think as well, yeah, I mean, Neil, you've helpfully showed us that the, the Hebrew word is, you know, how long will you limp? Mm. So in the NIV, it says, how long will you waver between two opinions? And I thought that was quite a pivotal verse in the chapter that in a, in a sense also showing what is this showdown about it it's about i mean it is about a declaration of who is the god who is alive and active in the world um 
And it struck me too that that sometimes that is a conversation that we may need to have with some of our friends and family who are not Christians yet, that but we might have been talking to. Um, you know, at what point might we get to that uh, opportunity in a conversation that says, look, how long are you just going to sit on the fence? How long are you going to waver? Uh, yeah, and I would argue, Elaine, I think also that it's not just that, that moment of Christians and not Christians. I, I think it's a, it's the daily question, isn't it? Maybe not the daily question, but it's the it's the you know it's the question I think that we should be continually asking ourselves and one another: Are are you wavering? And is it? And it's a preparedness to believe in the God who will show up. Um, that that in a sense Ahab's kind of given up on God, and that you know Ahab could have been a a, a worshiper of Yahweh, but for some reason he decided Yahweh wasn't going to be the God who was going to help him out, and so Baal would. would would be the next one he'd forgotten what god had done and i think mm-hmm. of um elijah there every day a raven brought him meat and that was a reminder to him of the god who's going to show up and then after that every day the widow who looked after him discovered that there was more oil in the the jar than ought to be there so day after day for those three years 900 days he'd learned about a god who showed up and and he still had lessons to learn the, there was a story this this took me to um, when I was at uni. I loved university. I loved studying, and uh, particularly second time round, it was my second degree, and I loved getting into it. So there was another student I used to work with, um, and uh, she she and I were always did top in the exams. But it was great because at the end of the year, the prizes they had two separate prizes. It was a very gendered prize: uh, one for the best male student and one for the best female student. Bet they don't so, anymore. Yeah, I know. I know. I bet you they don't. Um, And uh, I got the letter to say, well done, Neil, your best male student. And uh, Susan got the letter. Well, I didn't know this at the time. Anyway, came to the the graduation day itself. And in the big programme, you all get the degree and then at the end you have the prizes. And it had Neil Glover, winner of best male student. And then it had the person's name and it had best student. And... (laughs) And I, this is this is a shame. It 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 slightly ruined my graduation day, and I was really annoyed at myself because I was going to myself, Neil. You've had a great four years. You've learned lots of stuff. This is an invitation to be really humble here, um, and accept the fact that you know you you still had a great time. And yet there was a bit of me that was really annoyed, and I was really annoyed at being there. And I can totally identify with Elijah going. Obadiah, I don't want him being ranked alongside me. And uh, it was like a few weeks later, uh, the student concerned said to me, she said, I was really surprised that it had a best student because when I got sent the letter, I got told the prize was for best female student. So here's my take. It's a typo, Neil. It was, it was a, typo, a typo. But I think it was a divinely inspired typo to teach me a bit of humility. And if God can interfere in the typesetting of the Glasgow University um, graduation programme uh, to teach me a lesson, then there's really no end that God can do. So he can show up with fire in Mount Carmel. It's a lo- lovely moment of honesty there from Neil. But I, I, th- I think there is something, isn't there, in everyday situations, the Lord regularly says to us do you trust me mm-hmm. with this mm-hmm. do you trust me with this yeah yeah uh-huh. 
yeah, yeah. And in the moment when he does trust him, the fire comes on the watery, soaked altar. Yeah. And it burns up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil and the water in the trench. And when all the people see this, they fall prostrate and cry, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. So, it, you know, th- that act of faith results in this enormous thing. Can we talk about fire? Yeah. Fire has significance. Elijah does a lot stories. of fire. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's going to be... Pro- that, so there's, there's something interesting here, isn't there, that we kind of think, I wish it was always like Carmel. I, I wish it was always like you had the, the, the moment where, you know, God wins 10-0. Basically, that's that's what happens on on Mount Carmel, and sometimes it is. Which like, is a wee bit like it's a wee bit like the disciples um, with Jesus at the Transfiguration. Yeah, yeah. Mm. you know, Peter wants to kind of build a few tents so they can live there yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. on the mountain top mm-hmm. yeah. in the glory. Yeah, that's true. yeah. Uh, and of course, Elijah's there, and Elijah does, it. and the fire, the, thread. the fire is the fire is the victory. But we're about to. Well, later on, we're going to hear another story which sits in contrast to that we don't want to spend too much time well I, well no it's not that we don't want to spend too much time on it but we 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 recognize before we go into this next area of conversation we recognize that we're not probably going to reach an answer on this but can we talk about the fact that elijah then slaughters the prophets mm. of baal because yeah. it's a it's a fairly typical example isn't it of what what a lot of people would find problematic in the old testament yeah and i i struggle with it too uh, there's no, there's there's no doubt. I mean, there are passages in the Old Testament that tell you that you have to kill a false prophet who worships false gods. Um, I, I I do struggle with it. Um, you know, if I was to discover today that, you know, even in a Christian country, they had decided to I don't know kill lots of people of another religion, as has happened. Mm-hmm. Um, well, look what happened with supposed witch burnings in 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 Scotland and drownings. Mm-hmm. I really, really struggle with that. And I'm sure people who did these sorts of things used this passage as a justification. Yeah. Um, I, I find that the the person who teaches us to read the scriptures is Jesus. And rather than being the one who orders us to slaughter the false prophets, is himself killed as the true prophet. And that is the path that we're shown. I think that's really helpful Neil, because we we do struggle with these. I, I often find myself wondering, you know, the people at the time, did they struggle as much as we do mm. because they were living in the context and the situation? Um, and, you know, I think history would tell us that there was, there was such a lot of just kind of war and the taking of land and, the, you know, the killing of, of inhabitants of the land so it it and, is, and clearly what, what what these people were up to was not just, you know, being not very nice. Uh huh. You know, there was yeah. some deeply dark, evil stuff going around. That, but anyway, sorry, sorry, Lynn, Karen. I was just adding but to the list. <laughs> yes, thank you. But I think you can't extrapolate from this into our time, and and that, and because people have done that in the past. It has actually caused, you know, a huge number of, of problems. So I think how you've described it, Neil, in terms of looking at how Jesus helps us to mm. reflect back 
to the Old Testament is really, really helpful. And that, you know, his death is actually, in that sense, the key death in history Mm. that, that achieves so much in terms of redemption and forgiveness and reconciliation with God. One of my heroes when I was at Christian Union in university was a guy called Paul, uh, who um, he he trained in law, and he he came from a he came from a biblical tradition that perhaps wouldn't wouldn't have quibbled so much with these passages would have would have been much more in the the tradition that said this was the justice of God and this was the the just punishment of God, and yet he gave up every summer to go and try and plead the case of prisoners on death row in America. That's, that's mm. what he did. And he's since, uh, I recently saw him on Twitter, he's become the head of quite a significant organisation in Scotland. So he's carried on that leadership. Mm. Uh, yeah, really inspiring mm. person. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe that's a helpful place to leave it, isn't it? So, so we, won't, we won't reach an answer and people will have different perspectives mm-hmm. on how, how we view um, these encounters in the Old Testament. But I guess there's, a, there's something there about how we live out yeah. In our moment, yeah. <laughs> in mm-hmm. in the light of the resurrection, the cross and the resurrection. Um, yeah, as ever, outspoken at scottishbiblesociety.org if you'd like to throw in your opinion. Um, come back at us on that. So moving on, we, we then, so the, the encounter happens, the, there's this slaughter of the prophets, and then, of course, we're still living in the time of drought. Mm-hmm. As far as everyone is concerned, there's no there's no sense that this is going to end. Um except that Elijah can hear something. We still need the rain. We still need the rain. Exactly. And I like the fact that Ahab did go looking for rain. He Mm -hmm. just didn't realise that it was going to happen through a prophet. Mm -hmm. So God's going to do it. And it's it's, again, it's quite theatrical, isn't it? That Elijah says to his servant, go seven times. This is the first time I think we've met Elijah's servant. Um, Oh, well, because we keep being told this alone. Yeah, no, I know. I really hold as a servant. <laughs> no, I mean, I this keep, is completely keep... extra biblical, and I have no evidence for this. But what if it was the the boy he'd brought back to life? Oh, oh, oh. nice. Just saying, if I was writing it, that's who it would be. So here's here's my defence. <laughs> uh, so I, you're right. I have kept saying Elijah is always alone, and there are actually two exceptions to this. Uh, it's when he's with the widow and the boy, and then, of course, later on when he's with Jesus. My defence of this moment, you, you, you probably not let me away with this, is he's telling the boy to go away. So that's the one time we meet him in company. <laughs> Bossing him around, him to go away. Chancer, <laughs> not an equal friendship. Yeah. Yes, so he, yeah, he sends him away seven yep. times. Go back hey. and look, and then the boy comes back. We're saying he's a boy. Yes, we've now. Sorry, I've implanted that and, in your head. I know. Um, and it's only a cloud as small as a man's hand mm. that he can see, but that is enough for Elijah. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. That you know he's not waiting for. That is is almost what just reassures him. Yeah, God is in this, and the rain is coming. All he needed was just that, uh, and it's a small sign. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, but it's enough because he trusts, and it kind of takes us, doesn't it? Now, I I think we're at a similar place to Jonah chapter three. It's it's the moment where the prophet has pulled off this incredible victory, and 
Uh, with Jonah, it was the conversion of Nineveh. With Elijah, it's the defeat of the prophets of Baal, and the rain has come, and he has both caused the, the ending of the rain, and he's now caused its return. And it feels like total and complete victory. And in many ways, the story could have ended there. But as with Jonah chapter 4, which then unpicks some of what's going on, I'm really glad that the Bible doesn't end the story at the end of chapter mm. 18. But it does leave it on a bit of a cliffhanger. It does. It does. He's just running. He's running. I like it. He's running. He's divinely inspired running. He's going to be in the front of Ahab. And I think what we're maybe expecting. I was just thinking your whole thing about who was whoever won a race. You had a comment about that, about the resurrection. Oh, yeah, yeah. So Elijah um, won a race over Ahab. That's right. Yes, he beat a horse. Is, there, is Elijah <laughs> walking? Is he on a horse? We don't know, do we? We don't know. Um, yeah, he, he beats Ahab. God divinely inspires fast runners. The beloved disciple in Elijah. <laughs> and he's running all the way to and Jezreel. Eric Little. Uh, yeah, and we think that what he might end up doing is he might end up visiting some revenge upon Jezebel. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Thanks for that. <laughs> Sound effects brought to you by Elaine Duncan. Uh, yeah, and I th- well, I think that's where we're going to leave it today. Well, it's obviously where we're going to leave it because we've reached the end of the chapter. Uh, I forgot last week to ask you your takeaways in this moment. Takeaways that you want to go away and ponder for the rest of the time until we next meet. I'm encouraged by the interaction between Elijah and Obadiah. Mm-hmm. Because I think it is an illustration. It always thrills me the way the the Bible doesn't hold back from showing us what we're really like as human beings. Um, And so I just find that given, I suppose, some of my work context where I'm mixing with Christians from very different perspectives and different church traditions and all of that. And there's just some really lovely learning, I think, for me around the Obadiah-Elijah interaction. Yeah. My takeaway is actually the same. It's that, 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 that contrast that gets shown up. And I guess sometimes I'm Elijah and sometimes I'm Obadiah. Well, mine is about the wavering. I am going to kind of pray into that. Where, where are the moments that I'm wavering? And actually, I've been, God's been kind of convicting me around that for the last couple of weeks, actually. Really? Which is well, not convicted. That sounds too strong a word. But I've been aware of what are the things I'm really... Is there any specific thing? No, not that I want to share publicly. <laughs> That's no, fair enough. no, I think no, I think to be <laughs> that was over dramatic. No, I think I think actually I I just I'm aware that I've been in a kind of post pandemic sense of oh we don't really know what normal is oh we don't really know what's happening oh it feels as though everything's I'm trying to think of a phrase that puts it in terms that are you know not using swear words but um yeah things are not going well globally are they everything's um, a bit wavery everything's a bit wavery uh, and so mm-hmm. I suppose what God is doing I think for me is is just kind of saying right Fiona what what are you going to be in mm. that and how, how where do you where do I need to be responsive and where do I need to be more uh directive about things just kind of it's pretty big I know it's quite big <laughs> come back to me see if I've you know once I've ticked off all the all the other things that I've committed to doing I think that's um, more important than yeah, probably reading is. up probably on the is. Levitical law code. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Incidentally, I before this came into was at a meeting, sitting beside somebody who is um, from Jewish faith, and I, I nearly brought up the Levitical faith. Oh, thing. yeah. Well, <laughs> to be honest, I had to rush to get here. If we'd, if I'd been able to stay for the lunch, I would have um, 
done that. Anyhow, thank you both uh, very much for that. Was very stimulating conversation. Neil, it's time for Glover's others. Who on earth are they? Where do they fit in? And what's their story? Glover's others. B-list characters you really don't want to miss. Who's your B-roll character this week? Jethro. Jethro, uh, who is the father-in-law of Moses. Elaine, that was a smile from you there. You're a fan of Jethro? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, So there's two things I like about him. One is it's that moment where he gets Moses to delegate and I don't know about the two of you, but I've often said, you need to delegate more, as if it's the easiest thing in the world. But you do actually need people who tell you to do it more. It's very hard. A delegation is an art. It's not oh, yeah. It's not easy. Um, but he recognises that if he doesn't do it, uh, Moses is going to be completely exhausted. So it's, it's a very early piece of management advice, which I quite enjoy. But the other thing I like about him is that he's Midianite. He's a priest of Midian, so he doesn't belong to Israel's faith. Um, and yet he, there's a lovely moment where he who's a, a spiritual man comes to recognize that Yahweh is, is the God who has rescued the people. So there's a moment where his, his curiosity for all things spiritual has led him to recognize Yahweh, the God of Israel. So that's in Exodus chapter 18. And that's my Biro, the mystical man who came to meet God. Thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you both very much for joining me. Next episode, we'll be into the brokenness and stillness on Horeb, up another mountain, as we go on to discuss First Kings 19. So those of you listening, uh, those of you reading ahead uh, might want to read that in advance of listening. Thank you in the meantime for listening, and we will speak to you next time. The Outspoken Bible is a podcast from Scottish Bible Society. To find ways you can share the Bible, go to scottishbiblesociety.org.